Welcome to Soulful Connections. I'm Amanda Solar, your host. I started this podcast because I believe when we share our thoughts, our stories, and experiences, we help one another to create more meaningful lives. And I also think that an important part of life revolves around our search for meaningful connection. That seems to only happen when we get real about who we are and we authentically share that. So listen in, try to answer these questions yourself, and let's connect. Once upon a time, there was a woman who needed to start her week in a peaceful way. So she went to Cornerstone at 7.30 in the morning and she did Kundalini Yoga, which she knew about, but she never really understood. And thus she was introduced to Ogden Kruger and a Sunday morning ritual led by this incredible, magical force of nature forever changed her. Of course, that woman is me, and that beautiful force of nature is here with me today. Welcome, Ogden Kruger. You are so very, very sweet, Amanda. And you always have been. Well, thank you, but that is really the truth. Not only did you come to my yoga class, you brought your daughter. I did. And her name is Grace, and she was the gift of grace. And that oh. was a gift to me. When a mom will bring her child into my class, it shows that they get the yoga. Oh, it shows nice. that they get the experience, that they understand that it's all about going within and being better at who they are, which is why I love Kundalini Yoga so much. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about. I was going to ask you, how did you arrive at Kundalini Yoga? I got introduced to kundalini yoga the first time in 1983. So I had only known like Hatha-based yogas. And I was at a little bit of a stressful place in my life because my husband and I were buying a house, but we were buying a house that needed to be completely redone. You couldn't even live in it. So we were living in somebody else's house that was being redone. And that was a mess. It was a nightmare. Like, There was drapes everywhere. I was throwing my clothes out the window to people on the street. I was like, oh, my God. And I met met a woman um, in the area in Trenton, New Jersey. So not only that, it was in a strange area that I wasn't familiar with. And it was this one little cosmic place that was all being redone, but it was still different than anything I'd ever done. So I met this woman and she brought me over to, I don't know what was like a gym building. I don't remember where the building was. And there was this beautiful woman pre Calsa, um, who now lives in Puerto Rico and is Puerto Rican. Um, I say that to you because that might mean something to you. That anyway, is my husband she, is Puerto Rican. <laughs> she taught this class and it was like, no, nothing like Hatha ever. And I really liked it because I personally am not comfortable going into a position and holding it for five or 10 or 20 breaths. I want to feel the same 
letting go of whatever, but physically moving energy around in my body. So my brain can be really still and quiet and get these amazing things, but my body enjoys the more physicality part yeah. of Kundalini yoga. Um, so I went to her class and I, I like went home and I wasn't so stressed out. I wasn't so freaked out. And so I started taking the classes and I started looking at it and learning. First of all, they call it like this um, yoga for the householder, like anybody can do it. There's no pose that you can't do. And nobody's coming around and correcting your posture or saying your knees aren't bent the right way. You're this, you know, which that just doesn't work for me. I know it's a beautiful yoga and I'm not negating any other yoga. I'm just saying for me, those kind of yogas didn't seem to suit me at all. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't like looking at myself in a mirror and seeing what I'm doing. I want to go inside because that's what I'm working on. And in Kundalini Yoga, 99% of the time your eyes are closed. You're working inside. You're working on your pituitary gland or your pineal gland or you're working on your organs or you're working on your circulatory system or your nervous system. You're doing it all by moving this energy around. And I always loved just what they say the word Kundalini itself means, the coil of the hair wrapped around the beloved on this column of your spine. It just seemed magical to me. And I felt pretty much felt magical. That's a good way to explain it. I felt magical because it was feelings I hadn't known. It was, I had this ease I hadn't known. I had these releases of whatever, maybe it was like oxytocin coming from my brain. And I do think we let go of a lot of those cranial sacral fluids while we're doing Kundalini yoga, the dopamine and the serotonin and the oxytocin, which is all within us which as a previous person who dealt with substance abuse with kids in a high school setting, I was always trying to teach them what they were trying to get with something outside of themselves that was a product like drugs or alcohol they already had. And the more they used one from outside, the less their own brain produced what they needed. So if they could learn to produce what they needed themselves, they didn't need to go to the pot or the alcohol or whatever substance in order to feel comfortable in their own skin. I never heard that explanation. And that is a really interesting explanation. I want to find out what you were doing prior to or during this journey. You know, you said you were teaching kids, but I have to ask you why you were throwing clothes out the window. <laughs> okay. So we moved into these friends of ours, a lovely couple's house that, they, we didn't, Dan and I only had an apartment and we didn't want to pay for an apartment and start paying for our new house that we couldn't live in. So we asked our friends, could we live in their place that they had bought? We thought it was more livable than ours because they weren't moving. And they said, oh, that would be great. Then we know somebody's there. So we had this arrangement. We lived there for free. We're working on our house, but we didn't realize how much work they were doing and all my clothes were getting ruined. And you know, we were moving and I was like anxiety ridden and we're are sleeping up on the third floor of this house. And I'm like, like, I just lost it one night. I lost it. I was ripping my, I don't want this. I don't look at all my clothes are getting ruined. And I, and there were people down on the street and I was like making a scene with my husband. I was about to throw my clothes. Maybe I should throw my bike, you know, whatever it was. So it was, 
Oh my gosh. A release of a lot of stress. And yes. I did throw a few things out the window. Probably would regret it. Like if I saw them now, you would and that probably was 30 years them. ago, they'd yeah. probably be like, wow. Well, maybe cool somebody made that? out. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that story. So you were doing what professionally? Like what was that? So I um, was a high school guidance counselor. I started actually in some elementary schools. I started first in college, worked in a college, a community college. Then I went to an elementary school and then I landed in a high school. And so my last 20 years were with high school students at the same school um, in Hunterton County. So you um, were a devotee of Kundalini Yoga, but how did you come to actually teach it? Okay, so first of all, I came to realize in working with kids that breathing, which there's a lot of in Kundalini Yoga, um, was really helpful. And I wanted to use it with my students. And in order to do that, I wanted to know as much as I could and you don't really take a class on breathing, but because there's so much prana yama and prana, you know, is energy and yama is the way to get to that energy. There was so much of that in Kundalini. I said, let me go get my teacher training in Kundalini, not to go out and teach the yoga, but to use it in the job I was already in to find other ways to help students feel okay about being who they were. Because as you know, mammy, three children, like yeah. the teenage years are rough. There's a yeah. lot of things happening. You're developing faster than your brain can catch up to. You're dealing with what that high school environment, yeah. which can be feel safe and unsafe where you can, have a good group of peers, but you also might have this group of people you don't feel so comfortable with. And so you're really finding your way and you need a lot of support yeah. for that. And you don't believe anything an older person says. True. So having to deal with a kid who sees you as an adult, you need to have some other doorways open to you to get in. Huh. And I felt like, this that would doorway, doorway would work. And I did teach yoga too briefly, slightly, not briefly, but slightly. But when I first started doing it, it wasn't acceptable. And people were still saying, oh my God, if you use a Sanskrit word, is that like God? Is that right. religion? Yes. Is that this? People, yeah. But breathing is not. And people had already known about breathing. But since then, in the last 20 years, there's so much science behind all this. So I was in the right direction. It was how to get it in the right way was was your challenge yes you know you are so educated you really are and you are an artist as well um can you tell me about your childhood can you share your childhood a little um, bit with me i had a very cool and interesting childhood so i grew up in new hope my parents my dad grew up in manhattan and my mom grew up in Baltimore. So they grew up in big cities and moved to a small city. So one thing that I got was that there's more than what I was seeing. You know, so for my dad growing up in New York, there was every ethnicity in your area. The same for my mom growing up in Baltimore. So they grew up really open-minded, um, whereas there were still like when I was in elementary school, people that, you know, if somebody different got on the school bus, 
they were sort of forced to go to the back of the bus. And I would go home and if I shared a story with my mother, she would get so upset. I remember being getting in trouble one time because I said some story about how I went and sat somewhere else because I didn't want to be annotated with the person that was the person that didn't fit in. And it was a prejudicial thing. It was because they weren't used to it. But I grew up in this household of, you know, kind of radical hippie beatnik people that had lived and all of those things were natural to them, but it wasn't quite natural there. That was one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is everybody in New Hope was an artist. So my parents were creative. My dad's mother had an art school in Italy on the Amalfi Coast. My mom went to a really progressive private college in the late 1930s. So it was a very creative place. And she had done cartoons and stuff for a big brand when she was young. So I just had all these sort of magical types of things as I was growing up. Um, and then by the time I was 14, I had already had my first trip to Italy, <laughs> staying with my grandmother on the Amalfi Coast. She ran an art school. I'm running all around on the beach and through the town by myself and meeting all these amazing, interesting people. And that continued. So I went back the next summer and the next summer and the next summer. And um, then there was a long pause. And then I started taking my family, you know, my husband there and then my daughter. And I'm still deeply connected, even though my grandmother died when I was 17 years old. I never lost my relationship with that place or those or the people of that town. And your grandmother wasn't born on the Amalfi Coast. Oh, no, she's amazing, my grandmother. So my grandmother, Edna, um, her husband died in a somewhat trip, got run over by a car when my dad was only 16. So she was alone for quite a long time. And her sister, Irma, who was living in Mexico's husband had died young of some crazy. I don't remember exactly how he died, but she, my aunt Irma had had started some kind of art school in Mexico. She got bit by a dog on the beach and got rabies in her leg and she had to give up that school. So 1952, right after the war, two single women decide to go on this trip oh around gosh. the world on the QE2, the Queen Elizabeth II. And um, they go around the world and the boat stops outside and they get a ride into Positano and my grandmother's like wow wow this town is like this is unreal which it is and she decided to live there <laughs> and open an art school with her <laughs> sister amazing. who had already been running an art school and her sister only stayed around for a year so my grandmother ended up living six months a year in Positano and six months a year in Manhattan for until she passed in the 70s. So for 20 some years, she was running this art school. She was working on the Spoleto Festival, which artsy people would probably be aware of an, an, an international art festival in Italy. And um, yeah, that's, that kind of explains so much about you, too, <laughs> <laughs> just to have that lineage and that, you know, interesting people. Um who came I, before you and you know it's just really really I feel lucky. I do feel very very lucky and I love to go through like all my old stuff of my parents and things that were left around and like know the stories um I got interviewed 
about four or five years ago by this woman because do you know the movie the talented mr ripley yeah so uh-huh. that was written by a woman who lived in new hope for quite some time and oh, was very good that. friends with my mother so her name is patricia highsmith she was very 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 famous and written many many books and she had a very interesting life there are if you went and Googled her, there's a lot of books about, she wrote a lot of books and there's a lot of books about her, but my mom had a good friendship with her. And when she left New Hope, they corresponded for a long time. So I have all these letters. Oh, and, interesting. Which I may give to a museum actually in Switzerland. Someone was the last person who reached out to me. But I mean, who get, you know, I, I sit back and say to myself, like, who even, who would have this? Who gets to do this? And then I have all this, my mother cataloged everything. So I still have her files. And she had interviewed almost every artist in the Bucks County area. And she did a lot of work with the Michener when they were redoing the Michener Museum and doing their kind of Rolodex file of all the people. And she lent them lots of material. So all this stuff trickles down to me. Yeah. My mom was brilliant. My goal in life is always to try and get to be as brilliant as my mom was. I, I feel like you, you just life. have to be. <laughs> Actually, that was what I was just going to ask you. Like, what are your dreams for yourself? Um, well, to never stop learning is like my big thing mm-hmm. is to never stop learning, to keep studying, to keep learning, to... Um, say I am an artist and to say it and believe it a hundred percent and not like 70 or 80 or 90 percent to believe it a hundred percent and not to base it on somebody says they like my work or not just to be an artist because it's what I feel and who I want to be and I always felt intimidated because my dad was so creative. My mom was so creative. My siblings were creative. And so I never pursued an art degree when I was young, which I don't know if I regret it or not, but I didn't do it then because I felt overwhelmed. Like I'd never be good enough. I'd never be like the other members of my family. I didn't have their talents. And now I just want to do it because it feels good to do it. And it's what makes me happy and not worry. So there's a big, there's this big expanse between saying, I am an artist and feeling a hundred percent like I am an artist and you are an artist, (laughs) but isn't that interesting? We all do have that feeling of, um, you know, we, I was talking recently about just our feelings of worth, you know, we really, all of us, I don't, I think we've just come with it. I think it's just part of being human. Actually. I really do because I haven't talked to too many people who don't have it regardless of their circumstances. And the thing is, so as a, you know, I was a guidance counselor. My studies and master's degree, et cetera, are in counseling. And the other thing I do love doing is working with women, which is one of the things I do and have done and have done a lot of retreats and workshops. And so that will be continuing in my life. And it's interesting how I can teach people and give them tools how to be the best how to be their best self, how to feel good about who they are, how to continue to grow, even though I still have some of my own little. But I think that makes you a better teacher. I think that that's where it's kind of like I remember talking to my one daughter who 
is a writer. And I said, if you never experience pain and suffering and drama and trauma, you know, what kind of book are you going to write? And it's the same thing. If you just came to the planet a hundred percent owning exactly who you are, you might not have the compassion and empathy to really understand how to feed that yes. um, as part of somebody else. Right. And the big problem that we all have is our ego. Yeah. And our ego can go one of two ways. It can make us think we're better than anybody else, or it can make us think we're crap. Right. And it's interesting. I saw something and I've been trying to find it. I saw somebody had posted in a Facebook story and you know, a story is only there for 24 hours and then it's oh, right. gone. It was a quote from Dr. Daniel Amen. Do you know who he is? I don't. You, you I'm sorry. To, you, that's okay. <laughs> you need to just Google him because okay. he's an interesting person and you should know him. And he deals with the brain and he, in order to do work with somebody, he really goes inside and looks at their brain and where are their holes and you know, what does he see and how that can be worked. But he said this thing are he, and I'm going to try and get this correct because I think it's really important. So the way our brain works is based on fear. So it recognizes fear and then it helps us to deal with that. And because it works from fear, we wake up and it's sort of, there's this negative output. So uh, when we wake up every morning, we have to say, I'm going to have a great day. Today is going to be fantastic. Everything I want to happen today is going to happen. That's what our brain is going to hear. So it's not going to come from its own side, which is fear. Because then you walk out the door and you're walking out beginning with fear. That makes a lot of sense. There are some positive people that can just do this, but neurologically it doesn't work that way because your brain's doing what it's supposed to do when it puts you in a place of yeah. fear you don't want to live your life in a place of fear so you have to keep engaging with your brain and telling it today is fantastic right it's going to be a fantastic day everything i want to happen is going to happen and maybe you can write it down right you know, and in your well, daily we talk journal. about what morning rituals yeah what why are they important and can you share yours well, they're important because you're messaging yourself, yeah. <laughs> just like we're talking yeah. about. So I get up every morning and the first thing I do is a little tarot spread for myself. And sometimes I ask a specific question. Sometimes I'll say, just tell me mind, body, spirit right now. Or sometimes I say, hmm, should I do this or should I not do this? And then I get a story. I just do three cards. And I try and interpret it myself before I look at what anybody else has ever read. I do study a lot about the tarot and this ancient symbolism. So each card has a picture. And in that picture are a lot of symbols that mean different things. Colors mean different things, etc. So I do that. And then I go write in my journal anywhere from one to three pages. And I write, I think about the day before, anything that I didn't understand or confused me or I was upset about. And I just write it out to see, is something going to come out? Am I going to learn something? Or can I just ease it, get it out of my brain and onto the paper so I don't have to carry it around? And then I always end with my gratitudes, you know, 
what I was thankful for that day or that night or whatever and any questions I might have. And then when all that's done and my husband's walked the dogs and done his thing, we sit down and do a 20 minute meditation together and we do kind of Kundalini style. So we do mantra meditation and we chant a mantra for 11 minutes. And then we do a meta type meditation where, you know, we thank the planet, we thank the universe. We talk about having a good day. It's all, part of the meditation and there's some breath work in there. Um, and we do, we do our meditation for a thousand days. So we pick a new mantra every thousand days. So I've been doing this since I started Kundalini because it's part of the teacher training and Dan joined me about nine years ago. Is the it. thousand days part of it or is yes, that something you guys? A, well, they, in Kundalini yoga, there's a whole science behind everything you do. So the amount of minutes, the amount of days. So you might do a 40 day meditation, a hundred day meditation or a thousand day meditation. So we do a thousand day meditation. Then we pick a new mantra and we spend, you know, when we're coming to the close of the thousand days, about a hundred days in, we start talking about what do we want to create and what oh, mantra yeah. do we want to use. And then we pick the next mantra together. So Ogden, what would you say is a perfect day? What's a perfect day for you? <clears throat> a perfect day is when I wake up without bags under my eyes. That's number one. That's <laughs> a thing I inherited from my dad. And without the right amount of sleep, there were. So I wake up without bags. Um, I get all of my, I don't get ADHD during my morning ritual. Yes, like I, just I get that. do it. And I don't pause to look at my phone and I don't pause to like, oh, let me get rid of some of my emails. I do my tarot, then I do my writing. Dan comes in, we do the meditation and my morning is quicker and I start my day. Then I either get on my spin bike or I go in my room and I have a little wall Pilates machine that I love to work on. I do that um, or I go out and take a walk, whatever. I do some exercise. And then I might be teaching a yoga class, so I'll run out and do that. Um, or I might have a lunch date with a girlfriend. It's kind of nice to be retired because even though I work, I'm really retired from somebody else's schedule. So my day can flow really beautifully. And then I get at least an hour in doing some artwork and also make a good meal or eat a good meal that my husband made. That's a perfect day. That sounds pretty perfect, actually. <laughs> um, what kind of thing gets you through a difficult time or, you know, a time that's a crisis or something that's just even a challenge? What do you go to in those times? Okay. Well, uh, I had a strange, challenging time during the pandemic, which was intense. And I used my practices, my ritual, which I would like to call W-R-I-T-U-A-L, not R-I-T-U-A-L. Ritual, mm -hmm. like writing yes. is part yes. of that. So nice. I wrote, I wrote feverishly about what was happening. And I would, I was having a lot of anxiety about it. And so when I went to bed, I, I would 
get a list of breathing exercises. And I would do those breathing exercises till I could get myself to fall asleep. And then if I had a nightmare about the situation, and I'll just briefly explain so people might understand. I was having some issues with my insurance, my Medicare, etc. And I was corresponding with a man because nobody answered their phone or anything. And they shut off my Medicare and I had no insurance. And I insure my husband through my 30 years of being in education. And I thought, oh my God, we're in COVID time. What if I get sick, go to the hospital and I have no insurance and it costs my family $30,000 a day and I ruined my family. And I was uninsured for like four months trying to get this whole thing figured out Terrible. and every night going to bed with anxiety. Yeah. So not only was I writing letters, talking to lawyers, making phone <sighs> calls and dealing with this, a system that they don't ever answer their phone and a person denying that he canceled my Medicare. And so having to deal with that and thinking, having to write to his boss and get it straightened out. And they only, like you can only change things certain times of the year. So it was insane. So Sounds throughout that time, I used my breath and my writing. Not so much the tarot. I still did it, but it was like the writing like that, over and over. Which is almost like you are talking to you. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. trying to get it out and yeah. be so that my heart would beat a little yeah. slower and my brain would like drop down a little slower and then to go to sleep I had to do a lot of breath work what about you know is there a kind of um a quote or a favorite quote or a saying um not even necessarily during a crisis just something that resonates with you yes it is and and I always get it wrong but it's H.L. Uh, Mencken who was a social commentator and he talks about um religion and being a moral person and he says that being a moral person is doing what's right and to remember religion is doing what you're told whether it's right or wrong and i like to bring myself to that because i like to feel am i being right and is this real is this true is it right and a perfect example is uh my daughter's uh 31 when she was getting bat mitzvah you know i was told oh Jewish people can't be on the Bema. And I'm like, what? No, people who are in my family and are going to be a part of this thing are going to share this oh, right. and be up on this Bema, whether they're Jewish or not. Don't tell me that. That's a religious law that's doing what you're told and not is what not what is right. And yeah. so that was a religious incident, but I believe it's true in all parts of life. So that's my favorite, favorite quote of yeah. all times. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's millions and, you know, I, I try and write down quotes yes. that I read and see and remember. I don't always go back and read them, but that one's the first one that comes to mind. What about um, a book that has made an impact? It doesn't have to, it could be something you read recently or it could be something that you read 30 years ago. One of my favorite books that they made into a movie, don't watch the movie. Um don't watch the movie, but one of my favorite books um, is by this guy named Bryce, B-R-Y-C, Bryce de Courtenay, and it was called The Power of One, and it was about a young white man who grew up in apartheid South um, Africa, and uh, the whole book sort of is about him learning 
to use a combination of um, head and heart together. So wisdom and compassion. And if you just went with your heart, you often might get hurt. And if you just went mm. with your mind, you might hurt others. But to learn this combination of head and heart together, which so funnily once was taught in a um, yoga class, in a kundalini yoga class, this woman who's a very famous kundalini person was teaching um, cat cow. And she was teaching first with your heart, you know, and then with your head. So you lift your heart and then you lower your head. And she said how you would live your life compassionately and with wisdom oh. together, not one or the other by themselves. And I'm just like, wow, that perfectly yes. matches my book and my thinking. And I use them often as my words of the year, because every year I pick some words of the year. And this year, compassion and wisdom are two of my words, compassion Love and it. wisdom, along with creativity. But anyway, yeah. You know, I was going to end by asking you kind of what do you wish people knew or would do? Um, I wish people knew that they are resilient because we are. Mm -hmm. I wish they knew that there's a way through every block and not to get too frightened, not to let their ego take them in the wrong direction, to learn to breathe and allow themselves to bring it in. I wish everybody knew how much intuition they really have, but they just have to learn how to access it. So I think our bodies, physical and mental, know what to do, but that fear thing of the brain takes over, but there's these practices that we can do in our lives because we have all the answers. We just need to access them. That's perfect way to end. And Ogden, yeah. thank you so much for taking time with me. I, I'm really thankful. And I'm really thankful for all of the things you've taught me through the years. So I'm, thank you. I'm thankful that you make me feel so good. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening. And thanks to show advisor, Roseanne Griffiths, to the talented Bill Aronson, who wrote, produced, and performed the Soulful Connections theme song. Thank you to my friends and family who give me super feedback each show. And I would love to hear feedback and thoughts from you. You can do that by sending an email to soulfullife at gmail.com. That's S like solar, O-L-F-U-L-L-I-F-E at gmail.com. Thanks for connecting.